0: Vidrio Financial is proud to support Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG and Technology with Michael Oliver Weinberg. Vidrio helps allocators harness investment complexity to make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That's V I D R I O.com.
1: We would like to welcome everyone to the Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing. ESG and technology podcast series. Today, Greg Steinmetz is kind enough to join us. So listeners have a high level sense of our roadmap for today. This episode will be slightly more theoretical, uh, though Greg is a practicing asset manager. Um, The reason we brought him on the show is that he's also an accomplished author. He's written two fascinating books. The episode will not be directly about innovation and investing, ESG and technology. However, we believe our astute listeners, particularly asset managers and owners, will be fascinated by the two legends in finance that Greg has chronicled. Moreover, the parallels between some of this from five centuries and over a century ago to today are remarkable. We'll start with some background color, then discuss the two books. On that note, welcome, Greg. Uh, Thanks for having me, Michael. My pleasure. Let's start with your background. A very brief overview of your career and how you got to your asset management role, as well as being an author.
2: Well, my first job after graduating uh, from college was uh, writing ad copy for a a department store in Cleveland. But then I got a lucky break. A a friend of mine's father called me up. He was a money manager in Cleveland. Uh, He gave me an analyst job with his firm. But after a year of doing that, I decided it was not enough money. And I mean, too much money and not enough work. So I became a journalist. It's a joke. Mm. Um, I did that for about 15 years. I finished up as Berlin bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal, and then became the uh, London bureau chief. And again, uh, uh, good fortune lined up. I got a call from the guy who was the head of research at Wayne Conniff Goldfarb, the manager of the Sequoia Fund. He said, we're looking for some journalists to do deep digging into our portfolio companies. So I switched, and I've been doing that for the last 22 years while writing books on the side.
1: And uh, yeah, at Soros, I had some colleagues who were also formerly journalists, and uh, it makes sense from the uh, investigative research perspective. Let's, let's start, though, with your first book uh the richest man who ever lived a somewhat audacious title you know why why is it not John D Rockefeller or Elon Musk or one of the multitude of others um I'll let you unveil to the listeners who it is but Mm -hmm. it's it's really someone that I think almost no one had heard of until you unearthed him but again you could provide more color on that
2: okay the subject of that book is a banker in Renaissance Germany at the same time as Leonardo da Vinci and Christopher Columbus named Jacob Fugger And his claim to fame is having financed the Habsburgs, uh, which turned them into from being a sort of minor uh, aristocratic family in Europe to the rulers of of half the world, uh, including parts of South America. And Fugger also is responsible for kicking off the Reformation because he was bankrolling the pope at the time that Martin Luther was trying to turn things upside down. The The reason I, I was able to call him the richest man who ever lived, which was something my publisher was very happy about, is that if you look at how the, the standard way of calculating wealth across time is to divide someone's net worth by their, by the prevailing gross domestic product. And I was able to do that with Fugger, and it came out to four hundred billion dollars. You do the same sort of calculation for Rockefeller, and you get about two hundred fifty billion dollars. Uh, so if you if you toss out people like Massa Musa, who was a king and was born into wealth, and you you toss out other kings who didn't have to earn their money, then Fugger is indeed the richest man who ever lived.
1: Interesting, interesting. Um- what what lessons did you learn from Fugger?
2: Among the interesting things that I learned from Fugger was it's very important for a, a business that wants to be successful and keep growing, even after achieving enormous scale, is you have to make yourself indispensable. Had Fugger not made himself indispensable, uh, the Emperor Charles V would have just tossed him in jail and, and seized all his assets. But he knew that he was the only one on the face of the earth who could come up with money in a pinch whenever Charles needed it to, to fight his wars. So as an investor, if, if you can find a company that has those traits and can get it at a good price, uh, it's where you wanna be. Uh, another thing I learned from Fugger is the, the importance of keeping good numbers at the time. Yeah, double entry bookkeeping was around, it was in Italy, Fugger was the one who brought it north of the Alps. And unlike his rivals in Germany, he always knew where he stood financially. Others didn't even bother keeping records. To the extent they did, they might scribble something somewhere and, and forget where it was, they just kept everything in their head. But Fugger was very on top of things. And again, as an investor, now you see companies that are a little bit sloppy, You see companies that lie to themselves about their financial condition and fuker was was very cold blooded about how he evaluated his own business and those of his competitors
1: yeah and and now obviously we see companies like ftx were as you mentioned companies are sloppy and or don't have records you have this whole lack of audit in the crypto world which to me is entirely unacceptable Um, I, i just don't understand why you know if why why these companies can't hold themselves to the same standards that I, I you know publicly traded Western companies do, but that that's another whole discussion. But interesting that the you know those those lessons and parallels hold today. So so when you are investing, presumably you're looking for those companies that are indispensable with a low elasticity of demand. I guess is that right?
2: Yeah. Well, Warren Buffett talks about moats, and uh, Fuger had a moat. Uh, He had all the all the rights to mine silver and copper throughout the Habsburg Empire, the emperor could have taken it away from him at any moment, but it would be sort of like uh, taking away the ability of of Exxon and, and other oil producers who know what they're doing, take their expertise out of the Gulf of Mexico, it wouldn't work as well in the hands of others.
1: What will likely transpire in Russia now that the Western companies are leaving and what's transpired in South America and other places when Western uh, oil companies, for example, have left. Well, it seems like he was a reputable, ethical, and and clearly superb business person. Is, Is that right? Or do I have that wrong?
2: Well, he was his his claim for being ethical is what he did with his money he created the world's first uh public housing project at the time there there weren't any places where people who worked hard but couldn't afford a roof over their head could live Uh, people would be living shacks outside of town the gates of medieval villages would open in the morning they would all stream in do their work for the well-to-do folks in the city and then go back to their their shacks in the fields at night Fugger thought well that that's not right if someone is working hard they deserve a roof over their head so he built this housing complex called the Fugerei named after himself where he charged nominal rent as long as people lived up to his standards for how people should live which is to, to come home every night at a decent hour before the gates closed, to not be drunk and, and rabble rousing within the facility. And also, which was very important to him, pray three times a day for his salvation. And the Fugarai is still in business today charging exactly what it did 500 years ago. And I don't know if people are still praying for Fugar's salvation. But according to the documents they signed to get in, they're supposed to
1: Super interesting. That that's that's a quite a testament, considering the time. The time. I mean, there. You know, you had more of that centuries later, but for for that time, to your point, I mean, he was early on that.
2: Yeah, um, well, he was looking to save his soul, so it wasn't ah, all altruistic.
1: Got it. Uh, fair point. Fair point. But nonetheless, a, a, a positive externality for society. What What was the funniest or most inconceivable story you unearthed while researching it? That it was or wasn't in the book
2: well it it is in the book but the, i i was not an expert in medieval history before before looking into this but it's just so fascinating the way people lived how so many things are different today but how many things are the same one thing that was different was the water quality was horrible so instead of drinking water from the well people would drink beer and they'd drink it all day long it was 2% it was enough to kill the bacteria but it kept them healthy but they were drunk all day, every day. So Fugger managed to to make all his money while he was buzzed.
1: Oh, that's yeah. That is funny. I I did the benefit of, of drinking alcohol and, in in those times. I've read some m- multiple other books that have sort of touched on that. Okay, and then look what happened to uh, what happened to the Fugger fortune. Where where is it today? Um, is it still around? And
2: the Fugger family is now twenty one generations past uh jacob fuger uh many of them are still rich even though there are you know, hundreds of them but what what they did which was smart is they continued to marry into other fortunes mm-hmm. and also for foremost you know they started with a very big number they continued to invest they continued to marry well and uh more recently they they created a foundation to to keep Uh, the money out of the hands of of German tax authorities. So there are still uh, plenty of rich Fugers living high on the hog in Europe, partly because of luck and partly because of very good planning.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. All right. Let's now segue three centuries later in time to the protagonist in your second book, American Rascal, um, how Jay Gould built Wall Street's biggest fortune. For starters, how did Gould stack up in the robber baron hierarchy? Uh, and, And then how did he compare in today's dollars to Fugger?
2: well in the robber baron hierarchy who do we got we got rockefeller on top then we got carnegie
1: yep. uh and
2: uh there's some others
1: frick vanderbilt right vanderbilt
2: yeah in the rich of the list of all-time richest americans again calculated by dividing worth by gdp Uh, Jay Gould was 14th between Warren Buffett and Marshall Fields on uh, several of these lists. His fortune in today's dollars would be about $80 billion, Uh, Rockefeller, again, about $250-260. But What's interesting is Rockefeller lived until he was 93. He had more than three decades of compounding than Gould ever had a chance. So if you think you can double your money every 10 years at 7%. You do that calculation, he would have died with more money than Rockefeller. And at the time that Gould died, he was on par with Rockefeller. Rockefellers came into exceptional you know, world-beating wealth after the advent of the automobile and the need for gas. And that happened you know, later in his life. So Gould, as a businessman, was was as successful of any as any of them during his lifetime and in fact rockefeller called him the uh, smartest businessman he ever crossed uh came across and vanderbilt said the exact same thing well
1: i think there's a if i'm not mistaken there's a funny story on that right do you want to share that or
2: uh well there's there's plenty of funny stories but but i'll tell you two of them one was uh gold and vanderbilt were fighting for control of the erie railroad uh, Vanderbilt had the New York Central, Gould wanted Erie, and if Vanderbilt had succeeded in getting Erie, he would have had a monopoly crossing New York State, which was very important because grain and cattle came up through the Great Lakes, dropped off on a train in Buffalo and taken to New York City, where the market was. During some negotiations to settle a lawsuit between Gould and Vanderbilt, uh, Gould sent his uh, partner, Jim Fisk, who is this larger than life character, who is a uh, you know, a celebrity in New York for some of his antics, sent him to negotiate with Vanderbilt. On a Sunday morning, when Vanderbilt was still in bed, Fisk just walks right in the door right past the butler, uh, encounters Vanderbilt in his bedroom, just as Vanderbilt's getting up in the morning. And while he's negotiating this deal, he's staring at Vanderbilt's shoes. He can't get over just how great those shoes look. And he's thinking to himself at the same time he's trying to save the Erie Railroad for gold, you know, where can I get those shoes? Um, so I thought that that was interesting that that's yeah. the priority for Fisk. And then another story yeah, that's funny. also involving Fisk and gold was in this too. There was a rate war between the Erie and the New York Central. And Vanderbilt was trying to kill gold by, making uh, the Erie money losing that it couldn't pay its debts and he cuts the rate all the way from let's say it was a hundred dollars all the way down to one dollar you know just giving away freight transportation for free across new york state so Gould, in a demonstration of second level thinking he says okay if freight rates are going to going to be zero what can i do well i can transport stuff from chicago to new york for free in this case he trans cattle across the state and sold the cows at a huge profit because there weren't any freight costs and the freight was you know more than the cost of the cows and when Vanderbilt found out about it he swore a blue streak
1: <laughs> That's a great story. What 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 lessons did you learn from from Gould or or should should people learn from Gould or did did people learn from Gould?
2: A couple of things that that I didn't appreciate before was that you know panics and recessions come and go i've lived through several but these things were were longer and deeper during gould's time because there weren't any you, know, you didn't have things like the greenspan put and now the Paul put people got wiped out and even after you would have a horrible recession but then things would would come back stronger than ever. So in the panic of 1857, the long depression of 1873, the recession of 1893, America just came out of these better than ever. And at times like this, you know, that gives me comfort. I, I know we're going to come out of this. Let's hope it's not another seven years in the tank like we had during the long depression of 1873. But uh, we will emerge from this. And it's I think it, it makes it a little easier for me to keep my, my thoughts uh, on an even keel. Um, another thing I appreciated is how powerful a mechanism, some of these old world protections we had. And what I mean by that is uh, buyer beware was the only investor protection that there existed in those days and I think it made people a little sharper than maybe there are now certainly the crypto folks learned at their peril about buyer beware and particularly those who were naive enough to think that there was something like FDI insurance backing their crypto investments or that they actually still held their tokens when in fact they were only lending to, to crypto exchanges and were just you know, dependent on the exchanges to repay their bills. They couldn't just get their coins out again. And if there had been maybe more buyer beware experiences when the people who lost money were younger, they might have avoided these pitfalls. So those are the sort of lessons. A lot of the investing lessons from, from watching what Gould did directly no longer apply because in those days, insider trading was legal self-dealing was legal. I could own a company on the side of a publicly held company that I ran and funnel business to it, You know, my printing supplies, my uh, energy needs. And this was all legal. And Gould availed himself of everything that was both legal and extra legal, bribing judges. Of course, I wouldn't recommend that to anyone, but in those days it was commonplace and easy to get away with.
1: Unbelievable. So it truly was the Wild West. And it, it does sound eerily similar to uh, some of the markets you and I were just discussing that are apropos today and uh, with their sort of um, lack of regulation, lack of regulator, uh, intentional decentralization to avoid regulation, uh, all of which in, in my view should be addressed to protect investors. Um, I, you know, I, I previously, I was at a, a large pension and you know one of their primary tenets was um fair markets from an esg perspective and it it sounds it's it sounds as though many of the rules today precluding market manipulation and other things were, were were actually a function of of gould is is that right
2: yeah uh without question there was absolutely no regulation that applied to commerce apart from rules against stealing and conspiracy. There was a rule against bribery, but the legislature changed the rule in New York to make it so difficult to prove that you could do it with impunity. The rule was you could only convict someone for bribery if a third party actually saw the cash change hands. So I could bribe you, and if there was no one else in the room, if it was my word against yours, and there was no other evidence, you'd walk. So you could get away with anything in those days. What happened after this battle between Gould and Vanderbilt for control of the Erie Railroad is people took notice. And a guy named Charles Francis Adams, who was the great-grandson of John Adams and the grandson of John Quincy Adams, took it upon himself to stir up public opinion and get Massachusetts, where he lived, to be the first state in the union with a regulatory commission. And now we have the SEC, Uh, We have the FDIC, you can go down the list. We have dozens and dozens of federal regulations, regulatory agencies, commissions, bureaus, and then even more in the state. And here in New York City, we even have consumer protection agencies. There's absolutely nothing like that before Gould and the outrage that he kicked up. Mark Twain called him the greatest misfortune ever to befall the country, and that was because Gould set such a bad example, uh, but ultimately inspiring example for another gen, the next generation, subsequent generation of crooks that in Twain's mind, he ruined the country. But we did get the start of regulation. We saw the Massachusetts Railroad Commission right after the, the fight between Gould and Vanderbilt and all the bribery that went on with that. Uh, other states followed up, and then in the late 1880s, we got the Interstate Commerce Commission, which was the first federal regulatory agency. And then the progressive era followed and uh, the SEC came along in the depression on and on.
1: So it sounds like in terms of fair markets, a lot of, of good came out of him, um, out of his sort of negative externalities in these things for society and fair markets and leveling the playing field.
2: Yeah. And it's it's like crypto today in that when the country shifted from being an agricultural uh, based economy to uh, industrial one uh, lawmakers didn't know what to do about it and it took them a long time to wake up to the need for regulation and then it took them time to figure out exactly what to do about it so the interstate commerce commission was also the result of, of gold in a way, because it was the railroads that needed regulating. And that's what the Interstate Commerce Commission was going after. And gold owned more rails than anyone and built more track than anyone. So uh, gold, again, played a uh, an inverted role in creating a first federal regulatory agency.
1: Yeah. And to your point today, we have the literally we have these effectively the SEC and the CFTC. Um, and possibly some others, but at least those two, you know, effectively disagreeing on who should regulate crypto and how it should be regulated. So, yeah, but
2: it's, it's amazing, right? We we still have crooks. So we have forty thousand laws on the books to regulate commerce and finance, and the same stuff that was going on in Gold's time. You know, read about what happened with FTX, and I think this is straight out of the Wild West days of Wall
1: Street in the eighteen seventies. It's crazy. T- totally. To your point, strategies right that have long been illegal in public security markets, like front running and market manipulation, and in- effectively and insider trading, and all these things are not illegal or regulated in crypto. And it is inconceivable. I completely agree.
2: Well, that's where you know, buyer beware would be a nice uh, would be a nice thing for
1: people. Or caveat emptor as, as caveat the, uh, emptor. Right exactly couldn't agree more my personal view is there are unfortunately likely more shoes to drop you still have firms in the industry paying rates of interest that are unsustainable in my view and that you know you can only achieve three ways risk leverage or fraud i wrote an article on this this summer right that yeah. was published on september 28th by kaya the chartered alternative investment association and that was sort of uh 2 months before ftx and um Unfortunately, I still see mm, likely multiple other particularly large firms that are out there with what I suspect will likely be a similar phenomenon, may take a year or more like a sort of Madoff where these things can take time to unwind. But yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, the Madoff thing, again, we have all these regulations, but they didn't catch him. Even when, when they were getting warnings about it. So we have all these regulations, and yet it goes on. So I suppose I wouldn't want to live in a world where we didn't have things like deposit insurance. Uh, but in, in researching gold, I, it did make me think about what the world would look like. You know, there are there are those who argue that insider trading is a good thing because it helps with price discovery. Uh, you know, you can. There's arguments against every financial regulation we have, and as a a uh, series seven holder, you know, I have to be fingerprinted to uh, do my job. Uh, that seems a little excessive to me.
1: Yeah. Let's shift gears. But to your point, look, I think you make, an, you made another point that's just worth mentioning, which was society. Yeah. The safety nets that we have today are incomparable to the ones that were, you know, in, in Gould's time and, and certainly Fugger's time and those safety nets ranging from um you know the Medicare Medicaid social security um unemployment insurance um all all of these the the fed the fed put the feds sensitivity to employment and inflation and the business cycle all, all of these these safety nets are are to your point you know dampeners or or likely to you know Diminish, you know, the the reaction to the pandemic. I mean, that's another whole discussion. Yeah, smooth smooth
2: out the business cycle, which is the holy grail since the time
1: of FDR, right? Or try to anyway. Anyway, um, what so what happened? Wrapping up Gould. What what happened to his fortune? um, Be an interesting contrast here versus Fugger. And 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 why why don't we hear about like you know? There's the Frick Museum, which I love going to. There's Carnegie Hall, which I love going to. There's you know there there are colleges named after all these the other robber barons why why aren't there any gould named uh not for profit entities
2: well first off uh, gould divided up his assets equally among his six children uh, four boys and two girls and that was different than than vanderbilt what vanderbilt did was he gave 95% of it to the oldest of i think he had 10 kids uh that ended up in court some of the others said that's not fair but uh vanderbilt or in the case of his son, William Vanderbilt, prevailed and got to keep all the money. Vanderbilt wanted to keep the corpus intact so it could keep getting bigger and bigger. And again, because of compounding, William Vanderbilt, who wasn't considered by his father to be the brightest bulb out there, uh, doubled the family fortune. Uh, and so that was kept intact. Gould divided it up. Among the six, four of them, sort of squandered it they they spent very lavishly in striking contrast to their father who was very frugal one of them built the biggest estate in new jersey others married uh, a french nobility and and the, the people they married squandered the money mm-hmm. uh, but some of them well all of them maybe uh kept enough of it so that several generations down the road there are still very rich golds out there you don't hear about them uh, but but they've done very well and i got an email after writing the book from one of them who said you know great job i really liked what you did with this and it was a guy who uh, worked for a lizard in france and his last name wasn't Gould but Talleyrand. So he married into a aristocratic French family, kept the fortune intact. Uh, Talleyrand was Napoleon's uh, uh, diplomat. He was the chief negotiator uh, for uh, for Napoleon. So the, the Goulds they're they're quiet about it but but they still have money.'re they're, they're modest people. The other question was why why don't we know about them? Well, I mentioned that Gould died at a much younger age than Vanderbilt, Carnegie, and Rockefeller. If you look at when Carnegie Center was created, if you look at when Rockefeller Center, when the dirt moved on that, and if you look at Vanderbilt University, all of these things were endowed at an age of these men that was older than when Gould died. Gould died when he was 56 of tuberculosis before he could uh give much thought he was still in the wealth accumulation stage we don't know maybe he would have just given it all to his kids but he was uh in negotiations with new york university and who knows had he lived longer nyu might not be might now be called gold university
1: interesting super interesting anything we didn't mention on either of them or uh, advice or thoughts on the investing world um that you'd like to mention before we wrap up well
2: the thing I really liked about the gold book is how much action there is in the book you know, I make the argument that it was the wild west of Wall Street this was the same era when Jesse James was was robbing trains and, and robbing banks out West the same stuff was was going on in in uh Wall Street There was vigilante justice uh, the book opens with Gould getting punched in the nose by by one of his opponents. Uh, there's a kidnapping, there's a murder. there's an anarchist throwing a bomb at Gould's partner, Russell Sage. It, it was It was a very uh, colorful time and it showed me that you know the Wild West wasn't just something that was going on out west. It was happening right here in New York. And another thing that really struck me was, Although Gold was a crook and he, like I said, used uh, legal, but also extra legal means to make his fortune, he wasn't going after widows and orphans. He was going after other people who were trying to do the same thing to him. It's uh, one thing if if you're made off and you're uh, preying on naive investors, it's another thing if you're Carl Icahn going up against Bill Ackman in a in a street fight and what gold was doing was sitting at the same poker table with people who were trying to destroy him whether it be through short squeezes or other means so mark twain may have thought that he was the, the most evil thing ever to hit the country um i'm not sure about that i think there have been worse cases of financial fraud that have dragged in a lot more innocent victims than those who uh, suffered from gold
1: wow well the, the your, your discussion of the action and the, the 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 fighting and the murder and the um all this it's it sounds like an opera maybe maybe i'll write the libretto based on your book there you go um all right well look i'd like to you know or we'd like to thank you for that uh super interesting discussion and, and sharing your most valuable asset with us your time um we hope listeners have a better appreciation how one of the world's preeminent financial biographers has chronicled the lives of um, two legendary financiers, one in the old world and and the other in the the relatively newer world. Um, This is your host, Michael Oliver Weinberg, hoping you join us again for our next episode uh, where we'll speak with another thought leader who'll provide insight into improving alpha via innovation. Uh, Until then, stay well and thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Greg.
0: Thank you for listening to Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG and Technology, sponsored by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial, asset managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans and sovereign wealth funds can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's v-i-d-r-i-o.com. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial and or our host, Michael Oliver Weinberg. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.